Hi, guys. Hey, hey, Hi. Bullshitters. Bullshitters, we, we have, have a gone. special guest here for you. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, Bullshitters. I'm Brett Shuford. Um, <laughs> I, my initials are BS, so that works ah. really well. Um, wow. I am so happy to be here. So I, for those of you that don't know me, I am... Um, an actor, been in multiple Broadway shows, including the original cast of The Little Mermaid um, and Paramore, Amazing Grace, most recently Wicked, which I was in before the shutdown. And um, and then I also am a certified life coach and I help uh, creatives make money doing what they love. Particularly, I love to help LGBTQ plus creatives um, build a brand and make money, uh, you know, using their own, you know, brand. And you know, it's my mission to help as many LGBTQ plus creatives take over and dominate the world as possible. Wow. <laughs> We'd love to hear that. Um, Bullshitters, we have a little bit of a different episode in store for you today. It'll be a little less focused on um, one particular show and just a little bit more about uh, how the industry runs, what goes on behind the scenes a little bit, you know, a little bit more investigative journaling from me and Ooh. my fabulous co-host, Cassidy. Through the lens of what show are we discussing today, Brett? Um, I, I, did, we, did we talk about Amazing Grace, right? Isn't that what we mentioned? Yeah. 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 So if you could give us, you transferred with the show or you begin with the show on Broadway? Amazing Grace had a it had a different title, and they did a, a production at good speed. Okay. I don't know, like 2011 maybe, um, and it had it had gone through a couple like incarnations. It was an interesting history because this guy um, wrote it, who was like an ex cop in Pennsylvania, oh. who uh, was fascinated by the story of the guy who wrote the song Amazing Grace and had done a concert at his church of this show that okay. he wrote. That's very much, if you, if you saw the show very much inspired by Les Miserables, which <laughs> seems, seems a bit cliche, but um, the, I guess the producer or the lead producer had seen it and thought it was a good idea to sort of take that through a creative journey and they did it at good speed. So I was not a part of any of those. And then okay they were like, we're going to go do they, this production got enough funding to do an out of town tryout in Chicago in the summer of 2015, I think. And uh, I can't remember. My years are like foggy right you're now. So 2000 it premiered on Broadway in 2015. So, you're, so you're 2014 was Chicago. And then, you know, I, I was like, great. I needed a job. Uh, and they, and it seems like a great, you know, subject matter and um, leading man material to understudy the lead. And we went to Chicago and, uh, and it was, it wasn't very good. And I was like, they were like, oh, we're, this, this show's going to transfer. And they were like, this show's going to transfer to Broadway. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, right. So I ended up like looking for other work and I ended up taking these other jobs. And while I was doing this other job, I was actually in Germany directing a show. And they called and said, we, we got a theater, we're moving to Broadway. And I was like, what? 
<laughs> and so then the show transferred. It was kind of a crazy. Yeah. So that's that's when I joined was out of town. And then I did the Broadway transfer. Wow. OK. A follow up question before any of the actual nitty gritty or interesting. When when you're in a show and everyone knows it's bad, is there like a collective understanding? Do you all <laughs> stay quiet about that? Does it, is there any ever? How does the how do the actors approach that conversation? <laughs> <laughs> well, when you're in the show, when you're in the process, you really you're when you're so in the weeds, you can't usually see it. You're like when you're just usually like, oh, I don't know if this works. Like you can't mm-hmm. tell. There's no audience and. And if there's things that you that you feel don't work, you know, you're quite often, especially in an actor's position, you're very powerless because you're not the writers or the director or the producers. So, you know, and the actor who does speak up can be seen as, you know, a troublemaker or somebody who makes who, you know, who gets in the way of the creative team's process. So a lot of times, like, I think you just don't say anything. You need to believe in the show. You need to believe. And otherwise, like, how are you going to do it? How are you going to tell the story eight times a week? So you just try to find the good and you try to, um, believe and trust the creative team is going to figure it out and make it the best thing that it can be. And so that's really, I think the approach, but when you're in rehearsals and there is stuff happening in rehearsals and you're like, Oh my God, I can't believe this is happening right now. Mm -hmm there's such a sense of powerlessness and frustration that comes up and just like people just are kind of defeated, you know, in a way. So it's really about trying to preserve your psychology and, and keep yourself focused on, okay, I got to do this show. I got to find the things that are good and make it, make it work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. I, A lot of things, and we'll unpack this as we go further. (laughs) I was, in thinking about this and in thinking about what you shared with me, I was also thinking about the Book of Mormon cast that has recently called in the creators and said, like, hey, something's missing here. They're not getting that it's satire. They're The vibe is you are just making fun of the African characters in this show. And the creators did respond to it very well. Granted, this is a show that's been on Broadway for 10 years and can likely leave. But... (laughs) Um, I thought that process was really interesting. And I think the process from tryout to Broadway too is something our listeners don't know a lot about or kind of what that rehearsal process of getting ready to transfer a show is like. I I don't know. I, I want to second what you're saying as well, that when you're in it, you're in it. And it requires a certain level of emotional involvement that can also put up unconscious blinders that you're not aware of at the time, which is really challenging. 100%. I think you are getting paid to to build something and create something and collaborate with people that you have to try to do your best to believe in them because... And that's a challenge, you know, especially if you don't know them and, you know, but one of the things that was sort of frustrating for me in that I remember out of town, there were some things in the show that I thought dramaturgically I would, if I was directing it, I would probably fix and do differently. Yeah. And the director had said things like, if you have ideas, 
you know, email me, like, let me know what your ideas are, which I've, a lot of directors have said that in past <laughs> shows. And I love it when they say that, but then they don't actually mean it. You know, it's yeah. like you email them. Like, I remember I emailed him like almost an entire like manuscript of like ideas and which is probably a little too much, maybe an overreach, but I, I remember he just like, didn't even respond, you know? And it was like, it's so it's interesting. You want to believe that they know what they're doing, but in my experience, it's just, it's just a better choice. If you're in a position of of an actor to just do your best, because ultimately I'm really putting my ego in front of, myself when I'm doing that because I'm thinking I don't want to walk out the stage door and show my face to people that know me if it's a if it's a crappy project you know and like yeah but that's but that's not a reflection of me like I'm being employed so I have Mm -hmm. to kind of keep myself humble and just trust that like the audience knows that I'm just doing the best I can with what I've been given yeah I'm interested so what year were you with Little Mermaid I, I originated it. So 2000, wow. we did our out of town in Denver, 2006, no, okay. seven. And then we opened 2008. Yeah. So being on Broadway from 2008 until the pandemic shutdown, what are the key, what are some differences you've observed? What are some cultural shifts? Or you can say nothing. I, but yeah, what throughout your process have you observed, especially as we enter into this theater reformation call? Do you mean specifically, what, like in regards to what specifically? I think that can be a lot of things. I think if you notice changes in the process for the actors and how they're communicated and their role in the space, if you notice a process, a difference in the way that material is approached, if you notice a difference in the audition process, that can really be anywhere you spot it. Yeah, I mean, I think that the biggest changes I'm seeing are, of course, seeing more equitable hiring happening. You're, I mean, you're seeing that right now, just post-pandemic. Uh if you watched Annie live last week, you know, it was like, it was very diverse and that was very encouraging and female directed and led. And, um, so that's really nice to see that people are trying, but it's always like on the, like it always is on the heels of something bad happening. Right. It's like something negative has to happen in order for there to be a shift like that. So I was, wonder if it's going to be a lasting change, you know, or if it's just like a trending change. Um, I feel like New York theater specifically is so um, elitist because New York is like living in New York city is so expensive and the people who can afford to live there and attend theater uh, frequently tend to be a certain level of, and and type of demographic. Um, So I'm curious to see if it if it can be a lasting change financially for producers. But I think that, you know, the things that I'm most encouraged about are like the things like Scott Rudin stepping back, the things mm-hmm. like, um, you know, Broadway for Racial Justice and like some of these organizations that people are actually listening to and hiring and using to as resources. Um, audition wise. I think it's just slow. It's, everything's still kind of coming back still. So I don't yeah. know that it's like you can really say what's changed. But I will say from Little Mermaid, 
if you look at the cast of Little Mermaid, there was, mm -hmm. you know, it was very diverse. I think Disney was kind of the head of, was kind of ahead of a lot of producers in that regard. But then you look at something like uh, the cast of Frozen when that opened and it was triple, triple the diversity. And it was, it was just, so you can just see this evolution happening of awareness within these. And, and then you look at something like Jagged Little Pill, which is, which is, you know, really trying to even explore gender and all of that, which I just don't think people were doing at the time when we were doing Little Mermaid. It, you know, what if Little Mermaid had opened with uh, a trans person playing Ursula, you know, or, uh, you know, that could have been a very interesting time uh, and evolution for, you know, that led up to where we are now, where like Wicked actually hired Alexandra Billings to play Madame Morrible. And, she, oh, you know, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like that could have been happening 10 years ago. So it's nice to see that, like, it's it's evolving, you know? Mm -hmm. You're sounding... Um very positive about the future it feels it yeah feels like you it's have a lot lovely of, to hear i know because i feel like me and cassie sometimes get on and we're like oh another day another dollar everyone's <laughs> disappointing me right now i'm sad and the world is ending um but i guess to an antithesize antitha is that a word sure I don't know. that works it is sure. now thank you everybody <laughs> to antithesize Cassie's question, where do you still feel like you're not seeing enough growth? Like based on, you know, your experience going from tryouts and rehearsal rooms and all the way through the Broadway stages, where do you still feel like people are like hiding their, they're like, oh my gosh, yeah, we've got all this casting going on. And they're like, maybe not addressing other elements. You the know? biggest, the only thing that's going to make permanent change on Broadway is if the real estate owners change, right? Mm -hmm. So, because it really is not Broadway. I think people are misled in thinking that Broadway is an entertainment business. Broadway is a real estate business. There are four, 41 theaters, all owned by four different organizations, right? So, yeah. and none. Can you name those organizations? Yeah. So, there's the, the Schuberts who own like mm -hmm. the most, I think they own like 14 of them. Mm -hmm. Right. There's Jujamson, which is Jordan Roth's theater. I think they own like six or eight. So thrilled to hear that pronounced out loud. I always get that one. Jujamson, yeah. Yes, Jujamson. There's the Needlelanders, which are, I think are the mm -hmm. second largest. And then now there's Disney owns one, and then um, the Ambassador Theater Group owns two. Mm -hmm. Right. So the Ambassador Theater Group is a British theater organization they own the where harry potter is and they own the hudson mm -hmm. right and then the disney owns the amsterdam the new amsterdam mm -hmm. so and and historically it was all Nederlanders, jujamson and the schuberts that owned a majority of the theaters well those are family-owned businesses that have been owned by these families for generations those families races are guess what white right <laughs> and those people that are at the top of those organizations, the ones with the names Nederlander, right? They yeah. they aren't even theater people. They just happen to own those spaces and they get to decide if a show gets to be in that theater. Mm -hmm. And they get to decide in the end what stories are told, 
Mm-hmm. So yeah. until one of these theaters is owned by people of color, then we're not actually going to see a huge permanent change. Wow. I really asked for that answer and then I got it. <laughs> yeah. Well, Shooters, this sounds very uh, reminiscent of our conversation with Heather Shields, who is a Broadway producer as well, and who spoke about landlords and real estate owners within Broadway. Yeah. So that's a really you know, interesting way of looking. There at it. is a conversation about like turning the um turning the uh, oh my god, my brain is just my coffee has not kicked in. What's the theater <laughs> uptown the uh in Harlem? Uh the Apollo. There's this conversation about turning the Apollo into a Broadway house, which I think is actually a great idea because uh-huh. it's even though it's up at 125th Street, it's it is it, it, would, it would turn a Broadway house in a bl- mm-hmm. primarily black, yeah. historically black neighborhood, and it could kind of shift things in a way. But I also think what what some, one of these organizations should do, the Needlelanders or the Schuberts or whomever, they should auction off one of their houses to, yeah. a, pers- to a producer of color. Like, mm-hmm. we're going to open this up, best bid wins, like, and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and let one of these houses be... I, that's my opinion, you know, on it, because I think that that would actually start to change what gets produced. That's true. That's crazy. That's we can change equity for those that we hire all we want, which is great. And we totally should. And casting should be more equitable. But you're totally right. If it's it's what um, um there's so many of those infographics on Instagram. I can't even think of a specific one where it shows how like predominantly all of the artistic directors like across the country are like white and male and then they call it diversity when they bring on like white females and then they're like okay we're good box checked thank you yeah and i think it's important for our listeners to understand that infrastructural view of it because we we attract a lot of broadway fans and some people in the industry as well but that is a more internal view of it than the typical consumer gets yeah yeah and I think I think people understanding that, you know, your money is going that, that's kind of what I think, you know, Karen Olivo and, and like Eden Espinoza's calling out was really about saying who at the who's at the top receiving this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I think that that's why I really like what they were doing and really calling out. Uh, what's the name of their organization? Um, oh, it's like financial transparency for Broadway. Yeah. Oh, God, what is it called? Um but also, we see you. White oh, American they, Theater they, did that too. Yes. Um, but I, so I really like that. But the other thing too, I will say is the other like real issue that I've I have come to see continually over the years, and this really stood out to me when I joined Wicked, right? Because Wicked had, has been in existence for seventeen years. Wow. Right and. What you learn, what I've learned after doing multiple Broadway shows over the years, from from Disney to like Amazing Grace to Wicked, is like, you know, let's say you love Disney. I'm a huge Disney nerd, okay? If you love Disney, great. Uh, Disney as a, people will speak of Disney as a corporation, but then they also speak of Disney as a culture, right? People love Mm -hmm. Disney. There's (laughs) Disney fans. There's like a spectrum of Disney fans, people who love (laughs) You know, but then, but then if you really want to work at Disney, you have to go through their training. You have to 
get a contract working for them. Like it's Disney is a culture and a corporation, right? Mm-hmm. But people mm-hmm. people speak about Broadway in a similar way, but mm-hmm. the difference is that Broadway may be a quote unquote culture, mm-hmm. but there is no corporate buy-in, right? You don't go through some sort of training to become a stage manager or a producer. You literally, a producer can go up to the Broadway league and say, I've got $14 million. Give me a theater. And they boom, they're a producer, right? They don't have to go through leadership training or learn how to manage anything. They could just literally create an LLC get contracts with the unions and hire people. And so each show has its own corporate structure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then my question is where, how do we put accountability into those structures? If they're so like, they're, you're making them sound like the wild West out there, you know? Well, essentially, it essentially is. I mean, that's why it's so risky, right? That's why so many Broadway producers lose money. And then there's, you know, there's like one out of every, what, 10 shows is successful or something. You know, it's like because they don't recoup, you know, they they get investors and they they lose that money. And I mean, the biggest issue, you know, a lot of people will blame equity, the unions, or they'll, uh, you know, but the, the problem is that the, it's a structural thing. It's It was mm-hmm. all set up in this way so long ago mm-hmm. that the only way to change the system is over time. You can't do it all at once because it's too embedded. Yeah. Um, but I think producers need to, I think the, the unions need to require producers to have some sort of oversight that mm-hmm. each corporate mm-hmm. entity, each show has, they're starting to do this now. Like I know Wicked hired a social uh, justice coordinator, I think is what they call her, or a social... I forget I think what they inclusivity. call inclusivity. But they're not saying it. It's, anyway, maybe that it's... Okay. She's, an inclusive, she's some sort of director, but I forget what they call her. Um, to sort of oversee treatment and hiring and casting and make sure there's there's equitable inclusion stuff happening. Mm-hmm. But she's still hired by the producer, right? Yeah. She's still an employee of the producers, so whose side is she on? And if people are getting mistreated and treated... Uh, you know, it's interesting to me that like a producer, for instance, I'll, I mean, I'm just going to call it out, but like Let's at Wicked, it, you know, I joined Wicked and I was the first person they'd ever hired as a swing who had never done the show before. They'd always brought swings in from the tour. Oh, congrats. Yeah. Thank props you. To oh, you. <laughs> thank you. Except, except that like their expectations were so high because yeah. they'd never worked with somebody who had done that before. And they were saying, like, the director really wants to only hire new actors for the show. He wants fresh meat. As people leave, we're going to hire only new people. And yet, they've had the same resident director there for 17 years. Yeah, someone had, else can wow. direct the show. You're so They've right. had the same production stage manager for 14 years. Wow. And those people I'm just, are toxic. Right. Mm. Like the hus- the hostility and the toxicity that they create and they're at the top. Mm-hmm. Right. So wait, just for a little 
just to explain what's going on for maybe some listeners that don't know as well, what does it mean to be a resident director on a show like Wicked? And what does it mean to be a production stage manager on a show like Wicked? What do those jobs entail? Yeah. So from, I mean, I, I haven't been in, in those positions, but from my viewpoint, their job is really to keep the brand and the product top notch to mm-hmm. every night, make sure that the show is delivered to the audience at the level that the, they want it to be right. So mm-hmm. they get, they're kind of stuck. And I wouldn't want to be in this position where they have the lead producers, the director, choreographer, everyone, music director, composers, like everyone who created the show kind of watching them. And if something goes wrong, if a show doesn't run the way each of those people expect it to run and they get, a, mm-hmm. they get, a, you know, at the end of the night, the production stage manager will, send a production report of how the show went. If something Mm -hmm. didn't fly or lights went out or somebody got sick, Mm -hmm. that all goes in the show report and gets sent out to the whole, you know, team. Mm -hmm. And then the, you know, they, they're kind of held responsible. Like if somebody isn't, doesn't know their track, right? So it's a lot of pressure, you know, Mm -hmm. so I don't want to, I don't want to. And I think that, uh, I, I can't imagine the pressure they get from people who are making as much money as the people at Wicked make, right? Yeah. Because, yeah, so then those people are like, I want that money to keep rolling in. And if my show is stinky and it gets bad word of mouth, then, you know. But then the resident director's job is to kind of come in and as new people are hired to not necessarily teach them the show because the production stage manager at Wicked actually and the dance captains are who teach people the show. Then the resident Mm -hmm. director will come in and kind of fine tune it, if you will. Mm -hmm. But the resident director also tends to be the person casting with the music director. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, So to me, I think it's interesting that you will say, like, we want to keep the show fresh and hire new actors but we're not going to hire a new resident director mm-hmm. or a new production stage manager. Like the, the same should be said about the leadership within the system as well, because they get just as rusty and yeah, as the actors do. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or complacent. I would even say not rusty. They get complacent. And, yeah. uh, you know, so that was, it's interesting to sort of watch that. I think that, I think that there needs to be some sort of, oversight within Mm -hmm. the Broadway league where it's like, here's our core values Mm -hmm. (laughs) and here's what we expect our producers core values to be. Mm -hmm. And the core value, then the producer is then expected to set a set set of core values for each show Mm -hmm. so that if I, as an actor am witnessing mistreatment, bullying, hostility, that's against the core values of that business, Mm -hmm. I can go to the producer and say, this is happening. This is against the core values. We are all being held to the same values. And if someone, regardless of their position, isn't upholding that, we all agree that that's an issue and it needs to be addressed. But that does not happen. Mm -hmm. What happens is if somebody's being mistreated or bullied, which I witnessed at a high level, Everyone's too scared to say anything because they're so afraid they're going to lose their job. They're just so afraid they're going to get blacklisted. And that's where actors, I think, really 
need to not be so afraid. And I don't know how to, I don't know how to fix that. How do you fix scarcity mindset in a system that was built for people to be, to feel scarce? Yeah. And that's why <sighs> listeners earlier in the seasons, when Cassidy and I get on to people like Sutton Foster for not stepping up enough, it is so frustrating because Sutton Foster is a type of actor who has a big enough name that she could pull an, a, a Karen Olivo and she could like, call it mm-hmm. out and she if she called newspapers people would listen to what she was saying um whereas actors who just don't who are working actors who aren't at like aren't at name recordability like Sutton Foster you're right there's like they're just trapped they either have a job or they don't but they basically get to make that decision when they decide to call out or not call out and that's what I I really loved about Karen you know she recognized her privilege she knows she has the privilege. She's like, I'm a Tony winner. And I know that like I can speak up because I don't have as much to lose, but people who have mouths to feed and children, and you know, this is the only thing that they've done and they know how to do like, that's scary for them to risk losing their jobs. And I get that, but I feel like there's so much more strength in our numbers than we allow ourselves to recognize that if mm-hmm. more of us speak up, if like, the, the complicity I witnessed at Wicked was like, everyone's like, oh yeah, that happens. People get bullied. Oh, I've witnessed this happening or I've had this happen to me, but I've never said anything. I've never spoken up because it'll pass or it'll get better. Or it was like, what? Like, you're all just okay with this? And they're like, but it's Wicked, you know, it's a job and it's a yeah. great job and it's not going to go anywhere. And I'm like, yeah, but like at the expense of what? Like at the expense of, it's just a musical. Why should I be losing sleep at night because I'm being cussed at by the stage manager? You know, like, <laughs> you Can know, I... it's interesting to, I, I to, to my point, it's like, I, it's so disappointing and frustrating to see actors not stand up for each other mm-hmm. and not even just actors, stage managers too. Like, yeah, there's, we are, we are, there's so many of us that if we all just join together and say we deserve better treatment or, you know, and that's the whole point of equity, right? The union is that that's why we all, they had a union or we have a union. And yet we can all very easily give up our power and think it's hopeless. And there's, it's not like, it, it just requires us to, to believe that we have nothing to lose by standing up for each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is. I'm going to horribly misquote it, but there is conversation around how cynicism is still a tool of the dominating class because cynicism leads to inaction. And so I am really... You want to define cynicism for me over here? Like being in a, being a cynic, like being, nothing's ever going to change. This whole industry is broken. What's the point in fighting? And... I think you've expressed that very meaningfully and poignantly and from the perspective of an actor, which I think is new for our listeners and important. And I, that's just it. You, this is the dream job. And once you get there, they don't tell you that like, you know, they're going to treat you like a freshman again because you're there or, and that's not right. That's not right for any industry. And it's, it creates, it normalizes toxicity. It, has it creates a captive market in itself of like okay well we're gonna hire people who don't say anything yeah and 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 they've now like things have happened within the union where and equity like 
it is a problem. Like our union does need to, but it's because the union is made up of actors. And so there's still that scarcity embedded in it. So like, you know, they put you on a six month rider now at Wicked. This 10 years ago when I did Little Mermaid, if you got on an ensemble contract, you could stay. Once you got into that contract, you could stay as long as you wanted. They couldn't fire you unless you were total. They could either had to buy you out or you were total like waste away. Like you got so many, you showed up late or you didn't miss shows or whatever without calling out. You know, they could fire you, but they couldn't fire you. Oh my God. Sorry. The idea of like somebody just straight up missing a show gave me an anxiety. Who knows? (laughs) You know, I never witnessed it, but you know, um, it was impossible, nearly impossible to fire an, an ensemble member. Principal contracts would expire after a year, right? Now the contracts have been negotiated to such a way over the years that they put you on a six-month rider, which basically mm-hmm. is a tryout. So like me as an ensemble person hired at Wicked, I was on a six-month rider. <clears throat> and they could decide after that six months if they wanted to renew. And wow. If in that six months, this is, I watched this happen. This guy, this guy, an amazing swing who my husband had worked with, who I, he's so talented. They Mm -hmm. did not renew his writer because he spoke up. He spoke up about the way things were being run. He had a meeting and, and he was like, but they, but they can just simply say, no, we didn't, we didn't fire him. We just didn't renew his writer. Yeah. And even the context of entering in, knowing I'm on a six month <laughs> trial, you're going to stay silent. I would, yep. you know, yeah. I, I would Head be very, down. I work a new job now and I'm very like, okay, I can't mess up. I'm in the beginning. Yeah. So it, you know, it's like, it's a, it's an interesting, I I'm hopeful that people are so aware of all of this now and there's an expectation, but so much of what people are really, focused on it is racial equity and, and I'm and I'm so glad. But there's also this like this there are like heart, layers behind layers that, to that too. Yeah. That people aren't gonna speak up to because there's there's just so much inequity for so long that that's gonna mm-hmm. take precedent over just human treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's how it goes kind of in everything. I'm in these fancy grad school classes where we talk about interlocking systems of oppression, but like that's it. That is an interlocking system where we have treated people poorly from the beginning and of course more toxicity like assault and like racism and everything else that comes with that came to thrive in that environment. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um Wow. <laughs> Wow. Back on hope for a second. Um, let's let's. How does the how does the actual Broadway tryout process kind of function? Um, when you're like the out of town tryout process mm-hmm. is interesting because you're all they're always rewriting things. So mm. while you're in rehearsals, you may show up and what they've done historically is they'll have like a file cabinet outside the um rehearsal room with everyone's names and the stage management team or their PAs will print out new pages for your script that they maybe made changes overnight. And that day you get those new pages and you got to work on them. We're going to block in these new scenes or they may change a number and we have to re re choreograph it. Um, 
So that that's what I mean by you kind of get into the weeds so much that you're just like, I hope this is good because I have no idea. I can't remember day to day what we were saying or doing. And um, and you kind of have to trust that team. So it's it's a lot, you know, it's a lot of stress. And, and then especially once you get into previews, because you, a lot of times in previews, you're rehearsing during the day and making changes to numbers or scenes and or rehearsing new pages. And maybe at night you're doing the old version and you're not mm-hmm. putting in the changes for another week or two. Um, and that can be super stressful. Uh, yeah. Trying to remember like, okay, I'm doing the old version and you know they'll even put on the call board, we're doing version A tonight. Mm-hmm. B will go in tomorrow. <laughs> And not to mention just the hours you're giving them at that same time. It's not like you have copious amounts of rest during this time for your brain to compartmentalize all the different things. No. And then, you know, for me, I've always mostly been an understudy. And so when you're in the ensemble and understudying, not only trying to learn your ensemble changes, you're then also trying to learn the principal changes that you're covering. Uh, So it's a lot. It's a lot of work. Wow. That sounds both awesome and thrilling and also like it sounds like the actual living actor's nightmare like (laughs) i feel like i could walk onto stage at any moment be like wait a second left or right which way (laughs) yeah yeah oh man wow Uh, brett how did you find your way to this work what called you to the theater i was you know, it's, this is something I've thought about a lot during the pandemic, too. But I was six years old and loved musical movies, uh, particularly the Annie movie from 1982. Mm. Um, and so I just loved singing and dancing. I took dance classes. I Then my mom took me to see a live production. And I, afterwards, I just was hysterical crying. I was like, I just want to do that. <laughs> And so then I started doing community theater where I, I grew up in Southeast Texas. Woo-woo, and, Texas. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I started doing community theater and I just, that was it. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I want to do this for the rest of my life. And um, just immerse myself. I took dance classes. I was in choir. I uh, did all the community theater shows. I got an agent in Houston, um, when I was in middle school and I would do like local commercials and audition for food for nice. films and take, you know, acting classes. And, and then I started working. I mean, I would work professionally on my summers between college mm-hmm. and, uh, and then, cause I was just like very driven, very determined. But I also think that a big part of it for me was being gay in a, you know, in the, mm-hmm late eighties, early nineties, uh, in small town, Texas, I think that I needed it to escape. And it's always interesting to me as, especially as a coach, when I work with young performers, there's this shift that has to happen where you no longer, it no longer is the escape anymore. It then becomes your business and your career. And so then how do you find, where do you find your escape and where do you find your, identity Mm -hmm. if like for me i was always doing a show my entire childhood and then i graduate college and i'm not always doing a show because no one's hiring me 
<laughs> or, you know, like, or I have these like big breaks and then I don't know who I am. Right. I don't know like who, what's my identity. So it's an interesting, uh, and I think that that's one of the things I've thought about a lot is like how producers almost capitalize yeah. on yes. people's dreams. Yes. Yeah. Right. That it's yeah. like, they know that people, I, their identity is so rolled into what they do that they almost take advantage of it in a way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. I totally think that actors are easy to take advantage of if not if not maybe the easiest in the entertainment industry just because actors are the ones that I see using it as this escape. Actors, performers, dancers, like they're the ones that have tied their identities into this process. Um, of my design friends, my design friends have a much, and what I've always admired about them is that they have such a strong sense of self outside of the work. Like they mm-hmm. seem to know who they are and that they can take their skills elsewhere. Well, because not treated correctly. because their work isn't them; it's outside yeah. of them. Yeah, you know. So it's a, it's a hard it's a hard thing to figure out your identity and you know who you are and like understanding that you're more than what you do and how to how to love who you are and love what you do and understand that those two things don't have to be the same. And, you know, it's, it's a hard process and it's a hard shift. And some people shift out of, it. I think some people are scared to shift out of it because they might realize, well, I actually don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I've spent my whole life doing this. And now who am I, if I don't do this, there's like that shift. And I, I noticed a lot of people go through that during the pandemic. Um, people who were like, oh my gosh, I've never, I've lived in New York City. I've been in a Broadway strip for 14 years and I've never had evenings with my child. And now I get to have dinner with my kid and put her to bed. Why would I go back to that? Right. And like people witnessing this experience that they'd never thought that they were kind of like accepting as the norm. And it was, and it's not that it's bad. Like you can do that. It's fine. But like, I think people just starting to realize, oh, I don't have to kill myself to feed my child. I don't have mm-hmm. to like be on a rake stage and, you know, this sciatica that I've developed from doing a show eight times a week, you know, like all those things that kind of come from from repetition. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. interesting. Wow. I still this appreciate you doing yeah. that. Yeah, Brett, like, ooh, coming in and blowing us away. Like, <laughs> Your vulnerability is so admirable. Your Thanks. honesty is so admirable. And I I am so comforted to know that you are creating not not alongside acting, but in your personal endeavors and working to help other artists because like you clearly have such a source of wisdom in this. And I think when I see certain entrepreneurship ventures for artists, I get a little nervous about who is running them and what are they teaching. And so it is so great to see someone who's about the work doing the work. Thank you. And about the work being work and you being you, like about the two being separate and that being okay. Yeah. 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 I mean, I just want to help. I want to shift. I just want people to feel like it's a safe place to to create and then you can make money. You can make money. You don't need a producer to give you permission to do what you love. If you're waiting for that, you know, you can do that, but you also can do other things. You're capable. And there's so many tools at our disposal now. I just want to give people the the courage 
to be the creatives they want to be and not wait for other people to get them permission to do that. And how can our listeners find you if they wanted if they wanted to get that courage from you specifically? Oh, well, you can go to brettschufer.com. That's my website. Um, mm-hmm. There's yeah, there's all sorts of free resources there to help people. I'm on YouTube. I'm on Instagram. Um, and then you can also follow me and my husband at Broadway Husbands. We have our own podcasts and fun. Silly, we have a fun, silly time on Instagram. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And listeners, if you really enjoyed this conversation, we're going to flip flop over to Brett's podcast next week and we can hear all more about his wisdom and more from the lens of being a creative coach. Yeah. Um, Thank you to Sarah the Cert, as always. Thank you to Brett for being here. Uh, Thank you to Cassidy, my lovely co-host. Thank you to Rune. Thank you. Thank you to Rune. Rune, pulling weight. Yeah. Bullshitters. Thank you. We'll be back at you shortly. (laughs) Bye.